Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXLAM and FM in Concord, New Hampshire, and 101.9 in Manchester. We're podcast wherever it is. You find your podcasts. Our guest today needs almost no introduction, which is exceptionally rare for a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, especially one in only his third term, and especially when his reputation has been earned by helping to guide our country through the most important, disturbing, and consequential issues for the continued existence of our democracy since Watergate and perhaps since the Civil War. Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland was a professor of constitutional law at American University's Washington College of Law for more than 25 years. That's part of the reason he was named the lead impeachment manager for the Senate trial during the second impeachment of then-President Donald Trump for inciting an insurrection at the United States Capitol. For over a year, Congressman Raskin has been serving as a member of the United States House Select Committee on the January 6th attack. As the committee prepares for what may very well be its final hearings, we're really happy to have Congressman Raskin with us to take stock of what we now know and where this is all going. Congressman, welcome to Beyond Politics. Well, I'm delighted to be with you, Paul, and thank you for inviting me. My my question, my, I'll start off by talking about something that you recently told the New York Times. You said, quote, our hearings have demonstrated the essential culpability of Donald Trump, and we will complete that story. Could you tell our listeners in a nutshell what you think the crux of that story is? Why is Donald Trump culpable for the insurrection? Well, he refused to accept the results of a democratic election. He refused to accept the will of the people who elected Joe Biden with more than 7 million votes, 306 to 232 in the Electoral College landslide, which happened to mirror the Electoral College vote in 2016, which Trump had himself pronounced a landslide victory over Hillary Clinton. And he set about to try to demolish Biden's victory by exploiting all of the different nooks and crannies within the Electoral College. So he went to the state legislatures to try to get them to reverse the popular vote and to install Trump electors. He went to state election officials to get them to fabricate, manufacture new vote totals. He said to the lifelong Republican Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, just find me 11,780 votes. That's all I want. And I'm a politician. That's all I want is 11,780 votes. That was a president not seeking to combat election fraud. That was a president seeking to commit election fraud and looking for a willing accomplice in the Secretary of State. But when none of that worked, then there were a couple other schemes. His disgraced former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, who resigned after 18 days after, after having lied about his contacts with Russian government officials, he, his plan was just to seize the election machinery and then get the military to conduct a new election, because everybody knows about that provision in the Constitution. And when that didn't work, then it all came down to January the 6th. We'll get the vice president of the United States Mike Pence to step outside of his constitutional role and unilaterally assert lawless powers to nullify the Electoral College vote sent in by Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, thereby lowering Biden's vote total below Trump. And Trump could either be just 
anointed the president at that point, or more likely, they would have said there was no majority in the Electoral College and shifting the whole thing over to the House of Representatives for a so-called contingent election under the 12th Amendment. And why would they want the House of Representatives deciding under Speaker Pelosi and the Democratic majority? They knew that under a 12th Amendment contingent election, we don't vote on the basis of one member, one vote. We vote on the basis of one state, one vote. And they had 27 states to our 22 to one for Pennsylvania, which was split down the middle nine to nine, even had they suffered the defection of the at-large representative from Wyoming, Liz Cheney, as I think they would have, they still would have had 26 votes in the bag and they would have declared it for Donald Trump. He wanted to ride up the hill like Mussolini on the force of the mob and just show up in the Capitol, declare himself president, likely invoke the Insurrection Act, which is what Michael Flynn was urging him to do, and to impose martial law and call in the National Guard finally at the end of the day in order to put down the insurrectionary chaos he had set loose upon us and he would have blamed everything on Antifa at that point. I think people get the basic elements of that story and it was really the refusal of a lot of people along the way like Brad Raffensperger like Mike Pence, like the Democratic majority in Congress, like a handful of Republicans like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, and like the police officers who stood so heroically, like Officer Hodges, like Officer Dunn, like Officer Fanon. I mean, it was only because there was resistance to this coup slash insurrection that we were able to stop it. And I do think the public understands that, but we're going to fill in some more details. And by the way, nobody's laid a glove on any significant aspect of this story at all. I haven't seen any of the factual testimony contradicted. Instead, what we get is just a, a running replay of conspiracy theories and disinformation nonsense. Yeah, it so reminds me, me of the movie A Few Good Men. These are the <laughs> facts and they're not in dispute. It's such a damning story that you tell congressman and the other part of your quote to the new york times was we will complete that story as you just alluded to what are the elements that you need to complete in this story what haven't the american people heard yet that they need to hear well there was obviously an attempt to cover up what happened by destroying secret service texts and by trying to obviate evidence that took place on january 6 so we need to tell the story of that. I think, you know, one of the details that's been on my mind is when Donald Trump sat there doing nothing, not calling the Secretary of Defense, not calling the National Guard, not reaching anybody to try to respond to the worst domestic insurrectionary violence ever unleashed on the Capitol and the vice president. When he was sitting there, I would, I would like to know whether he was ordering hamburgers and french fries or what he was eating during that period. That's one detail I would like to fill in. But basically, we know what the story is. And I think there are some questions about to what extent there were foreign powers who were apprised of what was going on and what was going on with both official contacts with foreign governments and then contacts by people on the insurrectionist side. Secret Service texts hamburgers, foreign powers. Do you expect to get some of those details revealed in the final set of hearings upcoming for the committee? I, I don't know exactly where we are in any of that. And I don't know to what extent we, we have information on all of that. I'm, I'm still waiting to learn exactly what Donald Trump was eating as he watched the insurrection unfold and our officers 
get the hell beaten out of them by his mom. It was, as a former congressman, watching my former colleagues in the House chamber, ducking, hiding, putting on gas masks, and seeing the officers at the doors, the center doors of the House chamber with guns drawn, was one of the most chilling and disturbing, shocking times in, in my life. It was just beyond beyond comprehension. And, you know, between the impeachment and the January 6th committee work, you've been at this now for almost two years, trying to understand and lay out for the American public what happened during and after the 2020 election that led to the insurrection and the event itself. You, It's fair to say you know more about it than virtually anyone. What have you found out in that time that you don't think the media or the public has paid enough attention to? Well, originally, I thought that people failed to understand how conscious Donald Trump was that he lost the election and how conscious he was that he was engaged in lawless activity and that there were violent forces present. But now everybody really does understand that. But, you know, Cassidy Hutchinson testified that Trump was perfectly well aware that there were lots of armed and dangerous people in the crowd, but he wanted them just waved in right past the magnetometer machines, the metal detectors. And he said, those are my people. They're not going to hurt me. So he didn't care that they were going to go and hurt our officers, but he felt fine that they weren't going to be using their weapons against him. So they, they got that point. But, you know, look, there were three rings of activity on that day. There was a, a mob of tens of thousands of people who had been drawn together by uh, Trump's radically irresponsible tweet calling for a wild protest against the peaceful transfer of power. And within that mob, there were lots of people who were determined to engage in violence against our officers and to storm the Capitol and drive the vice president and Congress out. But there were also people who showed up more innocently just because the president of the United States was telling them that the presidential election was about to be stolen and they just showed up and didn't quite know what they bargained for. There was a middle level of sedition of the actual insurrectionists, the people who showed up with a strategic game plan. And these were the, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters, the QAnon networks, the militia groups, the First Amendment Praetorian, the Aryan Nations. These were the organized domestic violent extremist groups who showed up armed, ready for battle. They'd been training uh, for it. And then there was the inside realm of the coup, and that was Donald Trump and all of his political co-conspirators who were looking for a way to overthrow the presidential result and get him installed as as president. I think that people are maybe not as aware how much racism and Christian white nationalism played a central role in the ideology of the crowd. People are not as aware as perhaps they should be about how there were different foreign assets who were in that crowd. The New York Times did profile one guy who was clearly very wrapped up with Russian oligarchs and their paymaster. And he spent time in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He bought a house in cash for half a million dollars, which became a hotbed of organizing among domestic violent extremist forces. And from there, they left. They brought buses down to Washington. That guy, he filmed what was taking place with inside 
the Capitol. He tried to make it look like the police were attacking the mob as opposed to the mob attacking the police. They released it on Russia Today, and this guy has vanished into Russia and abandoned the house that he bought in Lancaster County, although I think it's still being used by some of the neo-Nazi forces that he attracted there. Wow. Let me, I just want to follow up. Yeah, I, I asked you earlier about what you call the essential culpability of Donald Trump. And that's an interesting, it's an interesting word in the law, culpability. In Watergate, the key question was, what did the president know? When did he know it? Now, you've laid out a lot of what we now know about the effort to overturn the election, the fake electors, the calls, the pressure, the Eastman memo, coordination between the White House, Ginny Thomas, the right-wing groups. The big question seems to remain, at, at least with a lot of people, is what did the president know and when did he know it? And when it comes especially to not just the illegal schemes to overturn the election, but the coordination with the attackers so that there is a direct link, so to speak, or there's a direct causality, line of causality but for causality between Donald Trump and the events of January 6th. What, what have we established in that realm about Donald Trump specifically? Yeah, well, culpability does, in fact, mean the level of intentionality with which a person acts to conduct a criminal offense. And Donald Trump is operating at the highest level of culpability. He, he knew everything that was taking place in general terms, and he deliberately, purposefully intended for all of that to take place. Does anybody in America believe that any of this would have happened from the legislatures to Secretary of State Raffensperger to the assault on the Capitol and Vice President Pence and the Congress, the unleashing the insurrection? Does anybody believe, anybody believe that any of that would have happened except for Donald Trump's determination to make it happen. Mm. Think about that. It, let's say Donald Trump had been like every other president in the United States, like take Al Gore, for example, who to a fault erred on the side of giving up even lawful legal mechanisms for trying to challenge the result, just saying, well, we need to have consensus and we need to have a peaceful transfer of power. If Donald Trump had done that if he had said, well, I'm disappointed by a loss by more than 7 million votes. We had more than 60 lawsuits. We lost every single one of them in every federal and state court where we brought claims of electoral corruption or electoral fraud or unconstitutional conduct. We've lost them all. And that's very frustrating to us because I'm still convinced I'm right, even in the face of eight of my own nominees to the federal bench rejecting everything I said. But I'm very disappointed, but I'm going to do what every other president has done. I'm going to accept this. Does anybody think that we would have had people dying on January 6th? Does anybody think that the Capitol would have been invaded and overrun and smashed? I mean, come on, like get serious. I mean, this all of this spun out of Donald Trump's own mania and determination to overthrow the election. And I would challenge any of my Republican colleagues to come and debate that. That's a perfect jumping off point to the biggest news out of last week, which was Ginny Thomas's testimony to the committee. And according to your committee chairman, Benny Thompson, Ms. Thomas reiterated her belief 
that the 2020 election was stolen. And you just laid out, Congressman, that 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 idea, that fantasy has been pushed beyond, I, I think, any realm where a reasonable person could continue to believe it. As you say, eight of Trump's own federal nominees to the bench having essentially debunked it. And yet, by Chairman Thompson's account, this is her current position. Is there anything you can share with our listeners, with the American people right now about what you heard about her current state of mind and thinking about the election? Well, I mean, I'm not revealing anything because the, the chairman's already said that she continues to cling to the outrageous big lie. The way that Donald Trump continues to promote it and the way that many of his intimates and insiders continue to adhere to it. And it just flies in the face of all of the facts, everything we know, all of the evidence. And when you ask these people, well, on what basis do you say the election was stolen? They just say, I, I know it was. Well, that is emblematic of how people think, using that in quotes, in a religious cult, where they will repeat any dogma that is pounded into their heads by the cult leader. And so the party of Abraham Lincoln, which began as a political party devoted to union and freedom and ultimately dismantling slavery and racism and the Know Nothing Party, which Lincoln strongly condemned and opposed because of their anti-immigrant politics, that party has been turned into the 21st century, the 21st century equivalent of an authoritarian religious or political cult. There's no other way of understanding what's going on there. It's as if you must surrender your critical thinking skills when you enter into Trump's cult of authoritarian personality. The political scientists tell us that the hallmarks of a fascist or authoritarian political party are a cult of personality around a charismatic figure who dictates all policy positions and political decisions to the group to a refusal to accept the results of democratic elections when they don't go the way of the party, and three, an embrace or refusal to disavow political violence as a mechanism for achieving power. So everybody got, every, all the Republicans got mad at Joe Biden when he described the quasi-fascist politics of the mega Republicans, but if the shoe fits, they've got to wear it. I was almost going to, to just ask you straight out, do you think that Ginny Thomas is in her right mind? I won't put you in that position necessarily, unless you'd like to comment on that, but well, maybe I, I can ask, please. Yeah, I, I don't want to or need to make any kind of judgment about that. She, she has adopted a cultish way of thinking. She actually was in a religious cult and has spoken about that and about what it meant to get out and to be deprogrammed. And I hope she can essentially go through the exact same experience getting out of the cult of Donald Trump. And there is a book by that name, I think it's called The Cult of Trump, mm. that analyzes the movement according to the scholarship and the thinking about what are the dynamics of cult control over people's minds. Well, that, I guess that sort of, that does lead to, to a question. Given everything we now know that you and, and that committee have, have revealed about, as you laid out, how thoroughly debunked the stolen election fantasy is, 
how worried are you and how worried should we be that Ginny Thomas and her vast right-wing network laid out so brilliantly by Jane Mayer in The New Yorker last year, that, that this group with her atop it not only continues to sit atop the leadership of the Republican Party, have direct access to the leadership on that side that may soon be in majority positions in our country, but also it is tied into Donald Trump's inner circle and continues to have this inside position within the Supreme Court. How much should that concern us? Well, we have already seen explosive, deadly violence take place at the capital of the United States. We've seen similar kinds of episodes at the state legislatures, at the state capitals. Donald Trump now frequently will send out social media missives saying things like, Mitch McConnell must have a death wish. What other president of the United States or former president of the United States talks like that? We can't normalize his conduct just because we're accustomed to it. There's something profoundly wrong for a president of the United States or a former president to be constantly jacking up his followers with violent messages like that. And, you know, in that same missive, he also engaged in openly racist mockery of Mitch McConnell's wife, who was in Donald Trump's cabinet. And my colleagues don't seem to think it's there's anything wrong with a guy who will turn with absolute viciousness on his own cabinet members, on his own family members, on his own subordinates and employees, if they veer from his dictatorial control over their conduct and their minds. I mean, you can be the greatest attorney general in the world, like William Barr, according to Donald Trump, and he was a terrible attorney general, but according to Trump, the greatest, but then becomes the worst attorney general and an idiot because he tells Donald Trump that all of his claims about a stolen election are, quote, bullshit. So you either have to accept hook, line, and sinker all of Donald Trump's conspiracy theory and lies, or you will be expelled in his bipolar universe to become an enemy. And there are people who have no problem with it because they are acting like members of a closed system religious cult, like the Church of Scientology or the Moonies. And I've told my Republican colleagues that when we get through this period, they're going to be fit only for sleeping on basement floors and selling incense and flowers at Dulles Airport. That's their destiny after the way they have suspended their use of their minds, their critical thinking skills. These people are members of Congress who bow down to an absolute con man and hustler like Donald Trump. So, Congressman, I want to focus for a moment on a question about our Supreme Court, the ultimate arbiter of our constitutional law. You're a professor of constitutional law. I was, just to give you a, a very brief context, I was a, a, a prosecutor and early on in my career, and I was hired by then Attorney General in New Hampshire, David Souter, who was a stalwart Republican of the old school, went on to serve on the Supreme Court. I ran into him at the yogurt aisle at the shopping shopping center after the Bush v. Gore decision, and he was just nonplussed. He was outraged about 
the political bent of the Supreme Court. And now we have a Supreme Court that has been stacked by Donald Trump, and it includes Clarence Thomas. And Ginny Thomas claimed in her opening statement that she had never discussed her post-election activities with her husband. She denied that he's ever discussed his work at the court with her because it's an ironclad rule in their home. Is any of that credible? And if they're not, if those if those denials are not credible, what 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 needs to happen? Are there consequences? What what are the next steps? And many on the left have been calling for for extreme measures about the Supreme Court. I mean, what what's to happen with the when the credibility of the Supreme Court has been so undermined with this kind of apparent conflict of interest between the political activities and the decisions of Clarence Thomas, who refuses to recuse himself. Uh, David Souter was a great Supreme Court justice. We would be I agree. blessed to have Souter on the court. That's um, true. And he was a Republican nominee. And another one of my favorites was Justice Stevens, who was a Ford nominee. And right. Souter, of course, was named by Bush. And, you know, people forget that Roe versus Wade was written by Harry Blackman, who was a Republican nominee to the court, and a majority of the justices who voted in the majority on Roe versus Wade were Republican nominees. So what we're experiencing in America today is a reflection of the transformation of the Republican Party, which is taking a dramatic hard turn to the right and, you know, essentially in an effort to marry its corporate statist policies with some kind of cultural agenda that would give them some mass popular base, essentially curried favor with the most extreme anti-abortion people in the country. And then they were the dog that caught the car, and now they're getting their comeuppance as the people of the United States of America, beginning in Kansas, show them exactly where we are on their pet issue, because America is a country where the people still believe in individual freedom and not the Republicans' right-wing theocratic agenda uh, conceived by Jerry Falwell Jr. and the other right-wing ministers who want to control the personal medical decisions of the women of America. So look, on, on Clarence and Ginny Thomas, I don't know if my view is a little contrarian for the liberals or progressives. She's got a First Amendment right to make an absolute idiot out of herself. And she uses that First Amendment right all the time. You know, just because you're married to someone who is in public office, the Supreme Court or whatever, doesn't mean that you surrender your First Amendment rights. So we know exactly where she is. And, you know, to some extent, that's better that we know exactly where she is. And of course, where her husband is. They're both basically soldiers in the right-wing Federalist Society movement that has taken over appointments when Republicans are president and taken over the GOP. The problem isn't Ginny Thomas, because she can be as maniacal and cultish as she wants to be. It's Clarence Thomas, because he's the one who should be governed by ethical restrictions, which don't exist, because under the current law that they have given us, the Supreme Court justices decide for themselves whether they have a conflict of interest. They decide for themselves whether they need to recuse a case. So what we're fighting for in Congress is for a real code of ethical responsibility that applies all the way up and down the federal courts, all the way through the Supreme Court. And that's what our focus needs to be on. You know, that Paul's question was about 
consequences. What are, what are the next steps and, and what are the consequences? And in preparing for this discussion with you today, Congressman, I, I asked some of our listeners what they most wanted to hear from you. Now, you, you may be disappointed. I know you work on a lot more than just the insurrection. And I, you, you, you've done a lot on, for example, the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health. You, you were very involved in the Inflation Reduction Act, prescription drug reform, and the fight for reproductive health care. But what people most wanted to, to ask you about, unfortunately, was about the insurrection. And it was it was very specifically about consequences. And one listener summed it up perfectly. What she wanted to know is, Will there be consequences, not for the foot soldiers who attacked the Capitol and not kind of described three layers of involvement a few minutes ago? What she wanted to know is, what about the generals? What about the people who planned and executed all of this, both the attempt to overturn the election and who created the conditions for the insurrection? And one of the things that they noted was that one of the big Democratic Party failures after the housing crisis and the Wall Street meltdown was that no CEOs went to jail. So I think what people really want to know is if there are going to be real consequences for the CEOs of the attack on American democracy. And specifically, I, I want to ask you, do you expect a criminal referral from your committee to the Department of Justice? And do you expect to see indictments of senior White House officials and other ringleaders up to and including Donald Trump? Yeah, and I appreciate that because there's two kinds of accountability at play in the current crisis we're in. One is the one you're referring to, which is individual criminal accountability for offenses committed against the United States. But the other is our collective social and political accountability for making sure that we fortify democratic institutions against coups and insurrections, political violence, and electoral sabotage moving into the future. So under House Resolution 503, our responsibility is the latter, is to tell the truth about what happened, get the facts to the people, because this is a democracy, and then make the recommendations that we need in order to have democratic accountability and strengthening in order to resist the new authoritarian forces that have been unleashed against us. But I share everybody's sense that individual criminal accountability is absolutely essential. The Department of Justice under Attorney General Merrick Garland, who is obviously a, a Biden appointee nominee to become Attorney General and who happens to be my constituent in Maryland's beautiful 8th Congressional District, has engaged in very aggressive investigation and prosecution of the people engaged in the insurrection. And they want to know, well, we'll go all the way to the top. That's what we all want to know. But I'll tell you this about most organized crime investigations and prosecutions. They proceed exactly the way this one has. They start with the foot soldiers and work their way up to the captains and then the ringleaders. And I know everybody's waiting for the Michael Flynn, Roger Stone level. I call them the Flintstones and Bannon and the people who were the intermediaries between the GOP power elite and the street fascists and hooligans that they unleashed on us that day. But we hope it goes all the way to those who participated in conspiring to interfere with a critical federal proceeding, the peaceful transfer of power, the counting of electoral college votes. It includes 
seditious conspiracy, which means conspiracy to overthrow or put down the government of the United States, which has already been charged in more than a dozen cases against Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and others who were engaged in that. So look, one of the casualties of Donald Trump's dreadful reign in office was the idea that politicians like the president and like members of Congress don't try to dictate and micromanage the criminal prosecution of people who violate the law in America. That's not how we do it. We believe we respect the independence of the law enforcement function. So I, I appreciate people's fervency and passion about that. I share their fervency and passion about it. I'm glad we've got a real attorney general in there. Nobody thinks that if William Barr were attorney general, any of this would have been happening. They would have said, let's let bygones be bygones when it comes to right-wing extremist attacks on democracy in America. So we've got a real attorney general. We've got a real law enforcement process. We're hanging on to the idea of the independence of the judiciary against Donald Trump's attempts to say there are Trump judges and there are Democrat judges and he's going to dictate whatever the Trump judges do and he's going to assume that the Democrat judges will be political. Nonsense. That is such an insult and affront to everything we've been trying to build in American constitutional democracy for more than two centuries. So I'm going to try and respect that. I don't want to try to micromanage what they do and so on. I think it's important for us in our report to list out and refer to the people and the Congress and whoever else is interested in listening out there at the state level, the federal level in law enforcement, the offenses we've seen. But they are 10 times more equipped to find those crimes than we are. And they're 10 times better able to make the judgment about when and where those things should be tried. So I'm not a prosecutor now at this point in my career. I'm a member of Congress, and my job in this capacity is to tell the truth to the American people, tell the truth to Congress and the DOJ, to make the legislative recommendations we need to fortify ourselves against future fascist attacks on our government, and then let the criminal law enforcement function do their thing. Let me ask you this. I, I, I appreciate the passion with which you argue about the importance of the independence of the federal judiciary, the, the fact that judges are to be impartial arbiters of the law, that we now have a competent United States attorney general who has been scrupulous in his both public comments and clearly in his leadership of the DOJ, which is now acting like a real DOJ. And I understand the both the brief for the select committee to make sure to to issue a report that talks about making sure something like this never happens again and that the that the various right wing elements that are attacking our democracy are constrained by changes that we make yet the question remains do you think a criminal referral which which a committee a select committee can make and in the past select committees have made do you think a criminal referral would make a difference, positively or negatively? So, well, well thank you, Paul. When you're re referring to criminal referrals, are you talking about referrals of people for obstructing or engaging in contempt of Congress? Because we certainly have made referrals for that, for contempt of Congress. 
we, there is no general statute that exists, at least that I'm aware of, that allows Congress to make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice or the Georgia prosecutors or the, the district attorneys in New York or whatever. That doesn't exist. So anybody can call up the Department of Justice and say, hey, I think somebody just tried to overthrow the government of the United States. There's no problem with that. And we can do that. But I think people were confusing the fact that there is a statutory mechanism for referring people for contempt of Congress, which we've not hesitated to do in the case of like Steve Bannon and others who have blown off the authority of the U.S. House, like Navarro and Scavino and so on. I brought a number of those to the floor of the House myself. But, you know, we, again, will recite, I believe, if a majority of the committee supports this, we will recite this, the federal offenses that we've seen take place by key actors. But the Department of Justice, of course, is perfectly aware of the statutes against interfering with a federal proceeding or seditious conspiracy. They brought charges there. And by the way, we have already, in pleadings that we've done, in different cases, and this was the case, the California case, we, we already recited federal statutory offenses that we believe have taken place. So there's been there's been no shyness about doing that. I just think it's overblown. The Department of Justice doesn't need the House of Representatives to tell them that a crime may have taken place on January 6th. Congressman, we have upcoming guests on the show, Karun Demirjian and Rachel Bade, who have just written a book that's going to be released in the next week or so on the impeachments. And you obviously were very, very close to the second impeachment, especially. Uh, looking back, do you wish that the Democrats had done anything different in either impeachment? Well, I can't speak to the first one, but it definitely asked the Adam Schiff about that or the other members of the impeachment team. I I was the leader of the second impeachment team that went over to the Senate. There were there have been four Senate impeachment trials of presidents in American history. So Andrew Johnson, who ought to have been impeached and convicted, although he ultimately was not. Bill Clinton for doing you know what, and that was utterly absurd, that one. And then Trump one and Trump two. And the Senate vote in the second impeachment 57 to 43 was the most sweeping bipartisan vote to convict a president in the history of presidential impeachment trials, where we had every Democrat vote to convict, 50 and seven Republicans from the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic, the South, the Midwest, the West, Alaska. I mean, so from across the country, we had Republicans do it. And then we had, by that 57 to 43, I had to explain to the foreign reporters over there that was not enough to convict because it's a two-thirds requirement for conviction in the Constitution. So if you add in the senators like Senator McConnell, who said that the impeachment managers from the House did their job and overwhelmed Trump's hapless lawyers, but they felt there was no there was no jurisdiction to conduct a trial, then what you have is the vast majority of the Senate saying Donald Trump was guilty. That, to me, proved to be the greatest case of jury nullification in American history because McConnell got up and said he's factually, ethically, morally responsible. Trump is responsible for everything that happened, but we didn't have jurisdiction 
to have a trial, even though that was a legal question, a question of law, which we had decided on the first day of the trial in a 56 to 44 vote, determining that the Senate did have jurisdiction to try the case, which was in concord with more than two centuries of practice and understanding. That lame excuse was brought up in the very first impeachment trial and was rejected by the Senate. And it was brought up again after the Civil War, where the where the Senate spent two weeks considering the claim that you can't impeach someone or, or try someone who's already left office. And the Senate said, no, that's ridiculous. Then anybody would just resign their office in order to avoid impeachment and conviction. So anyway, you know, McConnell took the coward's way out. And I, I've written a book about this called Unthinkable, about that period in my life and in the, the life of the Republic. And, you know, there are certain things that I raised that I wish that I had pressed harder. For example, the Senate was still seated, according to Democrats on this side, Republicans on that side. That's a ludicrous way to seat a jury. That doesn't make any sense. Whoever heard of a, a criminal jury sitting in a county courthouse where they divide the people up according to Democrats and Republicans? But I was told by the leaders of the Senate that the senators were still traumatized by January 6th. The insurrectionists had been rifling all their belongings and they didn't want to be displaced from where they were and they were they would be upset. They didn't want this to be the way to introduce Congressman Raskin to the Senate. There were a number of things like that that I wish I had pressed harder to, to change the procedural formalities so they would have taken it more seriously because you basically had 43 Republican senators who betrayed two oaths of office, one oath being their oath they take as senators to re respect and uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And then secondly, the one they took as jurors to render impartial justice, which means nonpartisan justice, not slavishly and blindly following what they're being told to do by the president who's the subject of the impeachment trial. Politico reported this morning, as we record this, that Quote, Republicans are openly musing about their plans to aggressively investigate the Biden administration, his family, and everything else in between, should they manage to win a congressional majority next month. They also said that the front line for any Democratic effort to discredit the GOP investigations will be on Capitol Hill, and several prominent House Democrats are expected to take on starring roles, including our recent guest, Jerry Connolly, and you. So we wanted to give you an opportunity to get a running start on that right now. What shenanigans do you expect to see coming from your Republican colleagues, and what are you planning to do to take them on? Well, Matt, let me first thank you and thank Paul, who has a distinguished lineage as one of the congressmen from the 2nd District. And it, today, that, that district from New Hampshire is filled by my friend Annie Custer, who's done such a wonderful job on this, on democracy defense, in addition to great service to the people of New Hampshire. But, you know, of course... The, their whole plan, the only thing they're talking about is going after Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and so on. They literally passed no platform in 2020. It was the first time in the modern history of political parties in America where one of the major parties went to a convention and then threw up their hands and said, we can't come to a decision about what our platform is, which is deeply telling in their case. They can't state what their platform is because they have no platform and they have no program outside of what Donald Trump tells them to do. 
I mean, that is like a platform for a religious cult. The platform is whatever the leader dictates to them. So yeah, so Donald Trump understands politics only in ad hominem terms and only in investigation and demonization and lock her up and put her in jail and all that stuff. He's the one who got us started on this. And it's his lawlessness and incorrigibility and ungovernability that has plunged America into the political crisis we're in. So, of course, they promise to continue doing that by demonizing and vilifying Joe Biden, just like they demonize and vilify anyone who used to be part of the Trump administration who has left and tried to get out of the cult. So we're going to have a tough job because we are going to have to try to blow the whistle and tell the truth against this age of disinformation and lies that they've unleashed against us. And also we're going to have to continue to try to make progress for the people of America, which will mean if, God forbid, they were to take over Congress, it would mean implementing the laws that we have gotten passed during the Biden administration, the infrastructure law, which, of course, the Democrats got done. The Republicans under Trump talked. They had an infrastructure week. They had infrastructure day, infrastructure month. They just never had an infrastructure bill. But we did, and we're delivering more than a trillion dollars for the bridges and the roads and the highways and the ports and airports and so on. And it's the same thing with the Inflation Reduction Act and capping prescription drug prices within the Medicare program, 35 bucks a month for people who are on insulin because of diabetes, no more than $2,000 a year for anybody within the Medicare program for their prescription drug prices. We've got to make sure that we defend that, that we make it work, even if, again, God forbid, the party of insurrection and chaos takes over. Congressman Jamie Raskin, leader on health care, lowering prices, inflation, fighting inflation, infrastructure, and of course, protecting American democracy, and also the author of Unthinkable, which I hope people will check out. Thanks so much for being on Beyond Politics. Thank you guys for having me. 